0: hi everyone welcome to the brown history podcast today is a very special episode it's going to be a completely different format and i'll tell you right after i tell you who the guest is our guest today is asha putley she is an amazing singer songwriter who's been in the music scene for over five decades if you've never heard of her music you probably have you just don't know it because her songs have been used by notorious big 50 cent jay-z the neptunes chris brown the list goes on and on her songs will be featured throughout this episode so you get to see firsthand what the magic is about. Also, I won't be interviewing Asha. Dipti Dutt will be interviewing her on behalf of Brown History Podcast. She's a writer, director, actress, producer, what hasn't she done? And she knows Asha's life inside out and her career inside out and she does such a great job speaking to Asha. It's going to be such a great episode. I wish I could take credit for it, but honestly, I didn't do anything. Naya Beat made this possible. Naya Beat Records is a Los Angeles based label. They have a passion for uncovering forgotten music from the little known South Asian music scene from back in the day. and this time they're working with Asha Putli and they've released her original tracks which you'll hear throughout the episode and they're available for purchase so check them out and uh, yeah that's it and enjoy the convo enjoy the music I'm out let's get this started
1: Hi there this is Deepthi Dutt for a very exciting new episode of the Brown History podcast a far-ranging deep dive Interview with a legend, an icon, a true artist in every implication of the word. Singer, songwriter, music publisher, interstellar iconoclast. She is credited with a myriad other accomplishments from being an actor who's worked with no less than the greats like Merchant Ivory, French director Louis Malle, and the Italian director Bruno Corbucci to being celebrated as a fashion icon for her unique costumes and styling in her performances and for her public appearances throughout her career. Through her music, she has been a feminist, an environmentalist, a lifelong activist in the forefront of global political figures. At the invitation of the jazz legend Lionel Hampton, she sang at Giuliani's inauguration. Mikhail Gorbachev, the Russian president no less, invited her to attend and perform at the many openings of his Global Green Environmental Initiative, including in Kyoto, Geneva, and The Hague. She debuted in America, singing for a Joffrey Ballet fundraiser at Studio 54. This is when Reagan had just cut off the subsidy to the arts. And then there's the discography, which is what we're all here for. As cited by the New York Times, she was considered the precursor to the Munich sound and therefore also an inspiration to Donna Summer and Giorgio Moroder, who rode the wave of that disco movement. A quote by the artist and musician Barbara Tucker reads, A diva is someone who was here yesterday, who's here today, and you can tell they're going to be here tomorrow. A diva is someone who is a sustaining artist. So it is with great pleasure that we give you the original diva, Asha Puthli. What a pleasure
2: to get this opportunity to speak with you again, Asha. It's wonderful. You know, you know more about me than anyone else, including myself, actually. So (laughs) I have to say that since we're doing it for Brown History, and you mentioned being a sustaining artist. That's what a diva is. That's the first time I've heard that. And I think it's mainly because I'm brown. And since it's brown history, you know, we've all heard that black don't crack. And people forget that brown don't frown. And we stay young forever and energetic and Basically, I think everyone from the South Asian continent, we're very adjustable, you know, very, because in India, we grew up with such an amazing, diverse culture, and we learn to adapt so easily. Our brain is wired that way. So, yes, I hope to be a sustaining artist for many years to come.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Amazing.
2: So, Asha, this is an
1: exciting time in your career, but your career has never not been fab and fun and exciting. Um, you've just had an EP come out a few days ago in Nayabit with the legendary Space Talk, remakes by French house pioneer Dimitri from Paris. And that's exciting. I mean, it's so current. It's so now. Um, and you're about to record your 11th studio album in Prague next month. I know you're still recovering from a serious bout of laryngitis and you're here doing this with us. Thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's the unstoppable Asha, right? I'm just humbled by your energy and unrelenting commitment to artistic output. You're your writing, compositions, productions, music publishing endeavors, forays. I mean, given all the newbies who are credited as the first Indian this or the South Asian that, Meanwhile, right here, Asha Putli, the blueprint with all the receipts, live and direct. Snap in Z
2: formation, please. <laughs> well I'm amused. <laughs> Deepti, I really feel you have a great, great appetite for confrontation. <laughs> No, <laughs> oh, come on. Speaking truth, that's
1: not confrontation. Come on. Credit words due, you are the blueprint.
2: It's just that you know, as time goes by, people forget and new people come on the scene and you know, they just forget. But thanks to what's going on now, you know, people through the through the years, first the crate diggers, then the remixers, then the sampling people my career has gone on and on and on and on, thanks to them. So let's kick off this Brown History podcast with a snippet from the latest remix. It's being re- it's been released, actually, right now by Naya Beat. And it's a remix of Space Talk by Dimitri of Paris. Let's do it.
1: Great. Let's have a listen. This is, uh, for the Brown History Podcast, a snippet from the remix, uh, Asha's new album that just got released last week. This is the remix of Space Talk. amazing that sounds amazing yet another version of space talk i'm so excited about this so asha your music has been sampled by the a-list of hip-hop including the notorious big p diddy 50 cent with his group governor kano and diplo action bronson chris brown i mean the list is kind of endless too long for this podcast so Can you tell us a little bit more about the remix, how it came about and what's coming
2: up with the other remixes? How did this album come to be? Oh, absolutely. I'm so excited about it because Naya Beat came up with this idea of offering uh, a platform for producers to officially remix some of my music. And, you know, before there were a lot of unofficial uh, put on sound, whatever SoundCloud, and but this is the first time ever. And I know that in September, uh, Naya plans to come out with remixes of other songs by very famous DJs. Uh, the first one, of course, is Dimitri of Paris. He's uh, like legendary in that circle. Then there's Maurice Fulton. There's Yuxek Khan. Psych Magic, J. Crib, Black Devil Disco Club. I mean, for all of you who do know the whole uh, DJ scene, which is so popular now. Um, Yeah, so I'm very excited. Something totally new.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. This is what's so amazing. I mean, one of the things I find amazing about your career is how you've kept up and passed your contemporaries. You've just stayed with the times and kept coming back. I came into you know, Asha put the admiration, thinking it was kind of like a cult following. And I've realized the further I've got into your work is that, you know, you've just stayed up with the time so well. Um, I wanna ask you to give us a little bit of a context to space talk and the recording of the album, in fact, The Devil Is Loose. I know it was recorded a short distance from the Berlin Wall at an important time in German music as well, and at a historical music studio with an international team of musicians, writers, producers, and the footage I've seen of that recording, it has you wearing that fly jumpsuit and those amazing shades looking proper like the legend you are. Can you tell us how you got here? How did it all happen? How did you end up at that
2: studio in Berlin? How did I get here? You know, it's the same thing. Like for now, if Nayabit, uh Mani, and Turbitito had not come to me and said, let's do this, it would have not happened. And the same thing over there. They, um, space talk happened because, well, it's a long story. I don't know if you want me to go through the whole thing, but uh, as quickly as I can do in, in a gist, um uh, In 1973, my first album, a self-titled album, had come out by CBS London, and uh, it did very well in Germany. So I was invited to do all these big shows like Hits Are Go-Go and major shows. And then after it came out, um, soon after that release, the Home Office... Uh, said I couldn't work there. It was 1973 and 1974 when Ed Amin and the you know the whole influx of Asians coming into London, uh, they'd become very strict about people working without work permits, etc. So uh, they said I couldn't work in London anymore. CB was very upset and suspended me for a year and a half almost uh, because. Their obligation to me was to do two albums that first year. And the second album never saw the light of day. But Germans, the Germans, CBS Schallplatten called me and said, this is so ridiculous. CBS London has ruined your career because, uh, you know, Georgia Maroda and Donna Summer, while they were doing their record, were playing your stuff and saying, try and make it sound like this. And uh, that's when uh, the head of German, uh, CBS Schallplatten, called, and he said the producer, Dieter Zimmermann, a very well-known producer who also worked with Giorgio and those days they were all colleagues, I guess. Um, And uh, he wants to do a recording with you and Dave King as well, who worked with Donna before, um, and uh, that's how it happened. They called me up, and they flew me there, my son, because, you know, one of the loopholes that they got out of the recording contract I had with uh, with London CBS was because I got pregnant, and uh, that gave them a loophole to let me go from that contract, even though it was their fault, for signing me up. Without, uh, without doing any uh, you know, due diligence as to whether, uh, what kind of status I had in that country. So anyway, that's how it happened. Where we did it was in a wonderful, wonderful studio called the Hansa Studio. In fact, the nickname for Hansa Studio is Hansa Near the Wall. That was the Berlin Wall. And uh, it's way before it came down, uh, almost 10 years before, because I recorded there, no, maybe less. I recorded there in 75, uh, this album, The Devil Is Loose." I know uh, soon after that, David Bowie, a lot of people came, U2, uh, big bands, the big rock bands came and uh, recorded in that studio. It's a, legendary studio of course Hansa
1: amazing so this is this this is what we would contribute or or, or credit to uh, what we said earlier was the Munich sound this is this is a movement with music that was being called the Munich sound
2: at the time right yeah it was called the Munich sound because most of the producers that created that whole, you know, with the synthesizers and that particular sound. Uh, Well, all the producers lived in Munich. Dieter Zimmermann, the one I worked with, you know, naturally. Um, uh, Rainer Peach, Giorgio Moroder, uh, Thor Balderson. Uh, Oh, gosh, there were so many amazing producers. I can't remember all of them. But uh, the names, I mean. Uh, But that's how it started. And I remember when they flew me in, just to give you a little bit of a a retrospective of the pivotal moment. Um, As I mentioned to you, I was pregnant. They flew me in to Munich. That's where I met everybody. And uh, um, with my son and a nanny and my husband, everybody. I had to write the songs for this album, first of all, after signing the contract. So they gave me some tracks to to write lyrics on. And I remember I didn't speak German at all. The only thing I knew were the words on the menu, because that's all I did was eat, eat, eat. And um, um, I knew kartoffel, because that means potato. And uh, so the, and they'd given me this music. So I worked on some of the lyrics and the melodies and blah, blah. First day at the studio and uh, I get in there and he's already been there earlier, laid down the tracks on this huge machine. I think it was like 48 tracks or whatever it was in those days. And uh, he says, are you ready? Uh, we've already got the song we want. They thought I'd have all my lyrics ready and I didn't. I was busy with the new baby. So and it turned out to be a song I did not have the lyrics ready for. So just then the phone rang and it was the, uh, uh, Rudy Walpert, who was then the president of CBS saying, have you started? Because now we're already two hours into the uh, studio time and, uh, And Dieter said, I don't know what he said, it was all in German. But the only word I heard was something that sounded like kartoffel. And I sort of panicked. I said, oh, he's probably saying I look as fat as a potato. You know, don't forget, I've just given birth to a child. And, you know, well, six months ago, but still I'd put on 30 pounds so I said, oh, he's calling me a bit." So when he got off the phone, I said, how horrible. Did you call me a potato to Rudy? And he said, no, I didn't. I made him repeat the whole conversation. And then what he had said was, the Teufel is lost. So when I heard the Teufel, I thought he said Kartoffel. And what the Teufel is lost means the devil is loose. What means that all hell is breaking loose. Because one, I was late. Two, uh, juggling all this too i was not ready with the lyrics so he said all hell and i said please give me just ten minutes and i'll have the song ready for you so i wrote the lyrics because sometimes people ask about lyric writing it can be so difficult and you toil and toil and toil and labor over something and it just doesn't come right and then sometimes it'll come like in a minute like a flash everything will come down and You know, there are a lot of words that rhyme with lose, abuse, goose, whatever. Uh, It was easy. So it just came out. Nowhere. In 10 minutes, the song was ready, and we recorded it. And I'm so happy that I remember Ben Greenman, who writes for The New Yorker, and he's an author of several books. Uh, I had not met him at that point. But when I did meet him, I was so thrilled that he had written in one of his articles the five songs in a podcast I think he mentioned it five songs he wished he had written and there was one by Paul Simon there was one by Parliament and and I was on that list too where he said I wish I could I think it was his five favorite songs Uh, and I was so chuffed and thrilled and just Happy to hear him say, "I wish I could write my stories like that so and then it became a gold album that was my big hit the first one
1: how fantastic i've 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 always wondered about when uh where the title for devil is loose came from, and you've just told us the whole history of it so it came from. It came from Berlin and it came from that sound and it came from German. <laughs> the Teufel is lost, huh? So a little more on space talk from you, Asha. Will you tell us the the history of space talk and, and, and let us know how space talk came about?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Well, um, space talk in particular well, I'll have to go back to when I was quite young. I had an out-of-body experience, which was pretty strange, where you see your body coming out and you go up, 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 and you see everything like a like a over. You see everything into other rooms and other people, what they're doing, and this form just gets out of your body. And I thought I was going to go travel pretty far out into space. And that's how it felt and uh but the my girlfriend who i was staying with you know she screamed and that brought this whole thing back into this human form and ever since then i always because that experience there's nothing that can make you feel so amazing and i think in a way that also takes away your fear of death or anything because that feeling that you get uh, is amazing. I can't describe it. There I was floating. And ever since then, I was fascinated by and several other experiences by space and like feeling like I was in conversation with something. Now you might all consider me a little crazy, but then artists are allowed that it's poetic license. Please allow me to be a little weird and a little crazy, but space talk coming to the actual facts of it. Well, uh, Dave King, and I wrote that together. He's a wonderful bass player. He set that bass tempo, which is so amazing. And, um, I was also a little, as you can see, I sing very high in that Um, because, you know, I'm very influenced by Indian music, Bollywood music, because it's like Lata Mangeshkar, you know, the high voices, all Indians, young girls, if you've noticed, they sing in a very high voice or used to. I don't know now. Um, And um, it's so complex how space talk took place in my head i'm talking about um
1: yeah i think i think that's a nice context i like that that's a nice context um i'd like to come back to it a little later on because i've got a, a a little bit of idea of how david keenan in his essay for red bull music academy has also spoken about space talk as being uh, something otherworldly entirely. So maybe he caught on to the vibe of the story you've just told us when he was doing his essay on on the track as well. But I'm going to ask you to come a little further back with me. And, you know, shall we start with Singapore? So I take you back all the way there. And you've told me this fantastic story before, amongst the many I treasure, and, um, about hiding in the bathroom from immigration in Singapore. So you would not be deported back to Bombay for running out of your time on your visa. And so you could record this track, which was also later made huge in America by, uh, Juice Newton. Um, and this is Angel of the Morning. So I'm going to play a little snippet of this, the original by Asha Putley and the Surfers. And then, uh, let's come back and talk about. Singapore. So here is Angel of the Morning. See about this track, uh, Ashapati and the surfers with Angel of the Morning. What happened in Singapore? Tell us about the Singapore episode.
2: Well, first of all, for anyone who is in my age group, in the 60s, we did not have passports just for the asking. I mean, we couldn't just get a passport. You had to get a P-form. You had to get uh, all kinds of things. Uh, a a sponsor and this and that. And it was pretty tough to get out of India. In any case, I didn't have a passport. So Um, it so happened that uh, I'm telling you, sometimes when the stars are in confluence and they all work in your favor. And I think young people, when they're in their 20s, teens, 20s, 25, even till 30, maybe 35, your brain, I think, has a certain capacity that if you're passionate about something, you can trigger out, trigger off a manifestation of what you dream of. If it's really there, your intention and your mind has to be very focused. And I remember. My father, for my 18th birthday, had given me a car, a little tiny, it was called a Vauxhall. And uh, my neighbor, she was a stewardess, and she was much older than I was. Beautiful, always smelled great and looked fabulous. And she said, oh, Asha, will you give me a ride to to the city? So, of course, I went with her to Bombay. We lived in the suburbs. And... uh, She went to pick up her check. So I went in with her, not dressed at all, looking quite dreadful. And the general manager came up to me and said, Gosh, we've been looking for just two girls to join BOAC, which is now British Airways. And um, we want someone like you. Will you please join us? I think the the lady from London is here. She'll interview you right now. And he said, within two weeks, you, I can get you a passport and you can be off to London for two months of training. I was—I couldn't believe it. And I just impulsively, I mean, knowing my parents would absolutely say, no, this is ridiculous. And uh, I went in for the interview. And, of course, I got the, the job. And I knew that in two weeks I was going to get a passport and I could go out and listen to jazz, listen to, you know, other places and listen to music. And and also the idea of this, you know, this whole juxtaposition of time, space, cultures, all that. I found it so exciting. So I joined it. I did the two months in London training then we started flying and we only flew to certain places, Beirut, Rome, Singapore, uh, the Trucial States, Bahrain and Dubai and London. We only went as far as London. And um uh, my last trip. So after meanwhile, of course, I've been applying to all the universities for music for a scholarship. Um, Northwest, Syracuse, Yale, Juilliard and I got no response at all no we don't have a jazz department this is in the 60s Berkeley was the first one to start a jazz department but that was a little later and um, so they didn't have a jazz department and they had no scholarships so um, I did get an admission to Martha Graham's dance school uh, in New York, the modern ballet jazz dance school. So um, once that came through, I had decided, okay, that's it. So I only flew for about nine months because when that year is up, uh, BOAC gives the stewardesses uh, a free ticket to travel wherever you want. Ten percent or whatever, and I decided finally I would come to New York because uh, Martha Graham wanted me to come and audition for her before allowing me because I used to, I used to study. I forgot to tell you Indian classical dance Bharatnatyam, Odissi, Kathak, little little splattering of this and that. So um, I decided. Okay, I have to give up my last trip so i did take that one year holiday i went there auditioned, got the admission went back to bombay and i gave in my resignation when you do that uh you have like two weeks decide which would you like as your last trip and i chose singapore because we had the uh, like 5 days layoff in singapore till we brought the flight back in and um Um, um, when I went to Singapore, I'd heard before arriving that there was an article called five beautiful women of India in, it was called Asia magazine. And uh, so I didn't want to pick up a copy of that too. So, you know, two or whatever. So I said, let me take, go to Singapore. And uh, when I got there, there was a letter waiting for me at the, tam- At the you know, it was the same hotel. We always stayed at the same hotel. Um, and it was addressed to me. I opened it. It was from a woman called Daisy Devon, who was then running in EMI in Singapore. And uh, she said, whenever you come to Singapore on one of your stops, please call me. And this was going to be my last stop. It's a good thing the letter was there. So I called I called her. I, I didn't call her that day because I said, What's the point? I mean, I'm going. What would she want to do anyway? In a day, we've got four days left. I went to the office of the magazine, Asia magazine, to pick up the copies because now they were not available. They'd come out. That's how I'd found out about it in India. So I and when I went there, I got hit by a motorbike. You know, when they say no good deed goes unpunished or whatever. Well, this is a. Sometimes you get hit by a motorbike and it turns out to be the best thing that happened in your life. So I got hit by a motorbike. I went, limped up to the office, got these magazines, and then I left, went to, to called up BOAC, and I said, Look, I've been hit by a motorbike. The doctor gave me a thing, put it in the cars, blah, blah. And he said, well, you can't fly, so we have to put out, pull out another stewardess. So I said, oh, wonderful. In that case, now I'll call this lady. And I called her, uh, Daisy Devon. And she said, how long are you here? And I said, I'm here for two more days. And I have to leave after that. And she said, please come. And, uh, and that's how it happened. I made a recording with the surfers in Singapore. And uh, we hadn't completed it actually, when I was supposed to leave and go back home as a passenger now, of course, because I couldn't operate. And that was my last flight ever for British Airways. But what happens on the day that you give up your your, your job, you also lose that visa because you're not the employee anymore. They can't be responsible for you. So immediately, the I guess, the when I didn't take the flight, British Airways uh, informed the immigration that I haven't taken the flight. So the immigration people came. I was in the studio at the time. So I hid in the bathroom. And of course, they went to the hotel. And finally, of course, they did come the next day and I had to take another flight out and get back because my visa had expired. That's the story about how Angel of the Morning happened <laughs> no gain without pain oh what is it yeah no gain without pain who would have thought the history of
1: your first recording with the angel of the morning had to do with the bike running into you a, a motorbike accident caused angel of the morning and i wonder if juice newton knows the history of the song before she did it so
2: much later such an amazing story I've uh, never met Juice Newton. I don't know when she did it. I have no idea. This was 1960, I guess, 66 or yeah. 67, somewhere there. Yeah.
1: Juice Newton's an American singer, and this came about uh, in the 80s. So, wild connection there.
2: But But the funny thing is that a lot of people in a lot of writers... A lot of people who've read Salman Rushdie's Ground Beneath Her Feet, and uh, the journalists, especially who know my story, my life, and they always say that uh, uh, Veena Apsara, the character in Ground Beneath the Feet, which means Angel of an instrument, Veena, the, the you know, the very first pre-sitar, Veena and Apsara, angel. That this angel of the morning, because the character has 91 similarities in the book as in my real life, which is strange. And people know that Salman Rushdie writes magic realism, or whatever it's called, factional stuff, perhaps, you know, when he's, he's uh, inspired by something or whatever. So... Um, the London Times actually did an article in 2001 um, saying who is the real Apsara? Well, I forget forget what the title was now, but uh, yeah. And they quoted some of the similarities. They did their fact-checking, of course, before printing the article. And there were a lot of things that Veena Apsara says that are similar to what I used to say to the London Times, or on television. For example, I used to say I'm 6,000 years old, and Veena Absara says the same thing. She says she's 6,000 years old. And uh, where I grew up, same place. My aunt's name, (laughs) she has the same aunt. (laughs) Too many similarities. My friend Andy Warhol, of course, he's named Andrew White or something else different but I forget now I haven't read that book in a long long time I only read it at the insistence of some friends who said you've got to read it it's definitely definitely you and I said no no it's probably just another singer that he's written about you know his fictional singer and then after I read it I said my God what's this (laughs) And in the end of the story, Veena apsara dies and they make dolls of her. And so, of course, the London Times said, oh, Putli means dolls and puppet. And it must be like a, a, um, a what do you call it? Like a, an, a, rec- hats, a hat off to you.
1: I, I know this story well. I've heard... Uh much about this and uh, the book, uh, The Ground Beneath Her Feet, uh, with all the anecdotal evidence of, uh, you know, almost a uh, (laughs) stalker-like affiliation to your life.
2: In that interview, I said that I feel I've been stalked by newspapers, clippings, and television clips or excerpts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he took umbrage to that. And he wrote to them and said, "We never want you to da, da 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 whatever, or I'll sue you. Any coincidences are, you know, coincidental. Blah blah." Um, so then it got reprinted in India by the Indian Times, Times of India.
1: Asha, you were friends and contemporaries with the great Chandraleka with whom you visited Woodstock in New York in your 20s. This is, of course, the township where the Woodstock concert had just happened the year before. But you and Chandraleka were actually visiting a commune called the Fur Balloon family who lived there in Woodstock and where the hippies tried to install you as a goddess, no less. So this sounds straight like out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. There is the path-breaking classical dancer Chandra Lekha and then there's the path-breaking classical singer Asha Putli together at a commune in New York. How did that happen?
2: Well, Chandra Chandra Lekha and I met when I was 14 or 15, uh, long before, you know, this, of course. And we were very close because she was... But at that time, very involved with, anyway, it becomes too long a story, but anyway, with Harindranath Chetopadeya, who used to be married to my aunt pre, before that, Kamla Devi Chetopadeya. And these have been the great stalwarts of Indian culture and community and uh, amazing, especially Kamla Devi. Uh, what she did for the handicrafts board and and everything for women and uh, just an amazing person to, I mean, I great respect and I admire her and she's been a big influence in my life. Anyway, that's how Chandra and I first met because of Harinda, Mana, we used to call him. And uh, Chandra visited me in New York in 1971, I think, or end of 70, like more than a year after Woodstock, the festival happened. But at Woodstock when I'd first gone there, you know, lolling in the mud, listening to everyone from Richie Havens and Sly and everyone, um, we do not I don't even remember who I heard, but um, I'd made friends with the Furballoon family in 1969. Like, Two months after I'd arrived, actually, in America for the first time. And we they used to make tie-dye clothes and take trucks, and we used to give pumpkins from there to everybody on the street and stuff like that. They were really hippies, and I loved it. There was a warmth, a camaraderie. And, and uh, yes, so Chandra visited me, and I said, come and meet the fur balloon family. That's it. That's how it that, that that happened.
1: How fantastic! What fun! What fun! Sandra Lekha and Asha Putli in Woodstock in it, just just what 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 a moment! Just already what a moment! So I'm going to take this even further for an even more impactful story here and now, um, and something that I know is close to your heart because he passed away recently. Um, I'm speaking about Vivan Sundaram, the great artist Vivan Sundaram, and your relationship in 60s Bombay at art school in Baroda and across India and Nepal as the first Indian hippies. The first love of your life as you've described him, your first boyfriend with whom you traveled on the top of a bus to Kathmandu. Um, was, yeah, was uh, no other than uh, the Vivan B- B- Sundaram, who also happens to be the nephew of the most renowned Indian painter, Amrita Shergil, his Masi. So this is not just Brown history, but really a history uh, of us all, a history that belongs to the world, really. Um, from the art school in Baroda to riding on top of a bus, please tell us about those years of your lives and times and
2: uh, with Vivan. Well, sweetheart, this would be taking me totally off into a very long and arduous conversation. But all I can say was he was a big influence on my life. Uh, We were very much in love, of course, naturally. And uh, he was older than I am by a year and a half. And he had graduated already. I was still at university. And he went on to teach at Rajkharth for J. Krishnamurti, at J. Krishnamurti's school. It's now called, I think, the Rajkhat Besant, named after Annie Besant. And uh, I followed. I went there to be with him. That was my, you know. And then from there, we, as as you mentioned, we, we at that time, we didn't have passports. And the only country we could go to was Nepal. <laughs> because, you know, India had a hegemony over Nepal in those days. And so... Um, we went to Swarambhunath and amazing visually. I mean, it was like a dream world seeing the living goddess and, you know, it was just amazing. And, uh, but Vivan was so committed. I mean, and I think he was a big influence in my life, not only with, with how I viewed the world with our, I mean, as I think all your relationships, close relationships, Influence you, you know, and I'm very lucky that I had someone like Vivan in the formative years of my life. And uh, we'd read books that most people probably wouldn't find interesting. We did and we'd go to forests and lie down at the down forest and look up at the skies and go with a friend of ours who was an astronomer. Um, we'd go into little little villages which are not on the map. I did anyway. He didn't come always with me, like Andhar Kanj, dark glass, Andhar and it was little place, People D in the border of Madhya Pradesh. Um, because I loved the idea of meeting the tribals. This was my Margaret Mead period, where I wanted to live with all the tribals, the bheels and the. And what an amazing, amazing experience. Those were amazing experiences. And he was always an activist, you know, and uh, an amazing influence. Well, for his memorial, which was recent, very recent, last week, uh, Gulam Sheikh, Gulam Muhammad Sheikh, who's a very famous artist in India, they all are, um, uh, uh, the Baroda school he mentioned he said I'll never forget Vivan looking like nuriev which he did and little did I know years later I would actually meet nuriev and he would teach me my first words and sentences of Russian <laughs> which helped me become friends with Gorbachev many years later that I'm talking about from the 70s and then the 90s.
1: It's an amazing story of an amazing time in India, I think. I mean, this is just a little uh, little over 20 years after independence. And, uh, you know, the, the Baroda Art School was a hotbed for uh, very interesting people that came out of their artists. And uh, it was an amazing time. I'd like to keep playing some tracks from your album, Devil is Loose, as we continue talking so that some more folks can turn on to the groovy treat of asha Putti music this is the title tack from the album the devil is loose <music>
3: all day by singing the blues, dining all night by drinking the booze.
1: That's a great track that's one of the most fun tracks. So coming back to New York 1969 back in the day landing into New York, you got yourself uh, as you said a Martha Graham down school scholarship and then upon landing, I recall you telling me that you were given a driving tour in a VW minivan of Brooklyn's tunnels and bridges that's like that's a very new way to see the city. And uh, I'm curious to know, what was the music playing then? What were you listening to and how did that affect you? How did that impact you?
2: I had a big influence because I was listening to music I had not heard before. Much more, more R&B, more funk, things I hadn't heard before, which led to the funk thing, you know? But uh, um, yeah, and of course, jazz. I was listening to jazz. All the different whatever was playing on the radio, I can't remember right now. All the stuff, Janis Joplin, um, Rolling Stones. I don't remember. How did it affect me? Especially the uh, the 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 black culture has affected me a lot. Yes, uh, I did not appropriate it, but. Uh, I feel a closeness, an affinity, you know? And uh, so there is that R&B feeling in my music or a funk feeling. I was listening to everything, whatever was on the radio, um, from, from uh, you name it, country music, pop, rock, you name it, I would keep switching the channels and hear whatever was going on. But the the affinity that I felt most, that attracted me the most, was the black culture. I loved the R B sound. I loved uh, funk. Funk was not, that's not what they called it then, but R and B. I I just enjoyed it, and I heard gospel music. And uh, the, the, the closeness to gospel and sometimes when you hear certain tumris or guzzles, you can hear a lot of similarities, you know, with gospel and Indian semi-classical or classical music. You can hear it. So I was very drawn to that music, to to. Black culture, Black music. And I think you can still hear its influence. I think there's an affinity there for me. Um, Yes, it affected me a lot. Most of the musicians I've worked with, actually, in America, not all, but most, have been um, African-Americans.
1: That's interesting. So there's a resonance that you felt with the with um, Black American culture and music and art and that seems to have affected you from the time that you got there in 69. That's very interesting to know.
2: The funny thing is I remember when I first came and uh, there's this very sort of stuffy club in New York. Uh, I think it was either at the Knickerbocker Club which there was a sort of sit down on Fifth Avenue or sit down dinner. Where was it? I'm trying to remember which place. Was it there or some other place? Anyway, there we were at dinner or the Metropolitan Club. It could have been either one. They're both on Fifth Avenue. And it was a very uh, white uh, crowd um, dinner. I think there were like 10 of us. And the man sitting, when he asked me why I was in America and blah, blah, and I said, you know, I was very drawn to jazz music. And that's why I, you know, wanted to come here and synthesize Indian classical with jazz. He said, the first, his response was, but that's black music. And it sort of took me by surprise. Uh, I felt very uncomfortable. By that comment,
1: yeah, your affinity to uh, Black American culture and Black American music, inspiring you, probably influencing you from the moment that you got into the U.S. in 1969. So, moving on, I uh, I know that a lot of how your meeting with Columbia record label boss John Hammond came about is very much in the public arena. And of course, we've done that amazing Red Bull Music Academy lecture. Shout out to Kenneth Lobo. This was the first RBMA lecture in India, by the way, and the last one ever. You closed the book on it, Asha. So I'd like to know a little more about your personal experience landing in New York City from a not dissimilar Bombay, which too is a global port city. For instance, I love the story of you walking past the secretary who never transferred your call to John Hammond, nor ever gave him your messages even though you'd been calling and she was a gatekeeper of her time. So then the day came when you did land that meeting with him and you walked past her desk on your way into Hammond's office. Do you remember what you were feeling? What were you thinking when you were walking past into your office? The (laughs) woman who had been calling and do you think she knew it was you um, when you walked in there?
2: Oh, I made sure that she knew it was me. Are you kidding? (laughs) Of course. I made sure. I said, huh, you never gave them to him, I said. And then I went, na, 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 (laughs) na, (laughs) na, No, no, it was wonderful. And it was really, thanks to, to um, dear, dear, dear Ved Mehta's book. He wrote a book, a chapter called Jazz in Bombay. And that's what, John Hammond happened to be reading when Vedmetta walked into the Century Club, which is a club only for people who at least had two books published. And uh, that's when he said, who is this girl and where is she? I'd love to hear her. And uh, so I was discovered through a book.
1: Classic. As it should be. As it should be. You've got such amazing stories, such an adventurous life of internationalism, Asha. So there's this one I've heard about you wearing a pillowcase in, a, in some sort of style emergency. And what was that? Please tell us the story. And also a little bit about, you know, what, the fashion photographers always found you fascinating because you were mixing it up, mashing it up, wearing a pillowcase out on the streets of New York. What was that all about?
2: I don't know what it was about. All I can tell you that I had more dash than cash. So what happens when you have more dash, you dress up with whatever you have. And, um, you know, for what's her name? Scarlett O'Hara, I guess it was curtains. What was that movie? I forget the name of the movie. Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind, yes. And for me, it was these wonderful pillowcases that I bought from... A man called Piraji Sagra who was probably dead and gone long ago. But they were beautifully embroidered with mirrors and this and that. This is way before that whole thing of skirts made with, you know, the work. So um, this was a pillowcase, but I'd cut a bolster. So I'd cut the other end off. One end was already open and I was very skinny. I was a dancer. So it was very skinny and I would just slip into this pillowcase, put a cinch belt so it wouldn't, Fall off at times, it did, and uh, then I'd put whatever I'd put a Saurashtra. Remember, I told you that I used to love going into the villages and I used to like the clothes they wore, so I'd wear a Saurashtran men's top, for example. Or uh, just recently, someone sent me a picture which was in the women's wear daily in which I'm wearing a sari, which I used to just wrap around me, very short. I used to pull it up, round, 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 and then put it around my neck with no blouse. And it was in women's wear daily, and people used to think it was glamorous. So, because they hadn't seen people dress like that. They were used to the sari, or a salwar kameez, maybe, but mm, the way I dressed was different. Only for or I'd buy clothes from thrift shops, and uh, that's why people I think, or fashion photographers, or or even people like Dali Salvador Dali. That's how I met, only because of the way I dressed. And uh, Diana Vreeland, same thing. They were curious. Um. So I ended up getting photographed by many, many wonderful photographers. I mean, fashion photographers, too. I have a lot of, and I'm very blessed and lucky. And, you know, coming back to John Hammond, when you asked me, I just wanted to say certain things are just ordained because I, that was the only name I knew as an American producer before coming to America because he produced Billy Holiday, Bessie Smith, Bob Dylan. And so that was the only name. And that's why I used to keep bothering sending him, you know, the tape, taking it over, leaving it with that secretary.
1: Well, aren't we glad that you made it in finally and that he heard
2: your music? Because here we are. That's why I say young people, when they're in their 20s and 30s, or even before, uh, they just have to f- keep doing it perseverance. It'll happen. Good advice.
1: So let's have a listen to uh, one of my faves from The Devil Is Loose and the first track on the album. This is Flying Fish.
2: Well, I'm glad you played that song because you talked about my being a feminist. And that song is really about the duality of women because we fly, we have, we swim and we fly. And that's what it's about.
1: Did you write that song, Asha?
2: Yeah. yeah. I wrote it because, uh, you know, at, at that time we were all into women's liberation. Uh, we wanted to work and prove ourselves and, you know, all that. And on the other hand, we also wanted to be mothers and have families and to balance the two it was pretty tough. You know? So not
1: much has changed from your time to
2: now, it looks like. Yeah, no, but I think, <laughs> I think women, yeah, I guess not. I guess not. It's always the same thing. But that was about women, about the duality that we have.
1: So you were asked at one point uh, in America, um, continuing from you know the things you have to be as a woman, you were asked at one point to change your name from Asha Putli to Ann Powers to make you more palatable to a mainstream American audience. You did not change your name. You did not adjust your English-speaking accent. In fact, you brought all your Indianisms with the jhatkas, isharas, the way you used your eyes, the colloquialisms of mudras, the murkis of your hand, the way you throw your hair back. All of this was stylistically actually very pakka-hindi filmy. And you made it all cool before we even had a context for multiculturalism or globalism. You were mashing up culture before third-culturalism existed. You were the godmother of it all, in fact. Um, Tell us about how you managed to remain as profoundly authentic as you have been to roots and culture.
2: Um, In many ways, I have to thank my background, you know, living in India for my formative years, and uh, learning, I was learning, not just sitting for my exam to get a Bachelor of Science, which is what I got, uh, but I was steeped into the arts. I would study, because my parents always said, don't do music as a profession, but if you want to study for educational purposes, just on a cultural you know, thing, they would hire the best teachers. That was fine, but I couldn't do it for money. I could not do it professionally. And that was a big stigma for, for me for a long time. I was not able to even sing in clubs, by the way. You know, I just had a thing of, oh, no, I can't sing in a club. But, um, yes, we were all influenced by the Hindi films and the Hindi movie uh, music coming through the windows, loud playing from neighbors as you pass by. And so, yes, and the fact that I would studied Indian classical dance, I used the mudras. I was trying to incorporate in a very subtle way, as subtle as possible. Even bringing in this music, I did do it. Uh, I remember the producer saying, you're overdoing it, it's too much.
1: So this is good to know that, you know, uh, the, the culture was strongly embedded in you to carry it out, you know? Um, I, I, I see that's common to a lot of Indian women, who have been artists outside of India, it, it, It's a very the, that culture stays very strong with you, especially when you've grown up in it, um, versus being the diaspora. When you are the diaspora taking that culture out, it tends to stay really strong with you. Um, so that's good to know, that's good to know that's where it comes um, for you as well. So moving on, I'd like to play another track From The Devil Is Loose, this is Say Yes. Coming back from Say Yes, another lovely track. Um, I'd like to speak about your work with the legendary Afri- African American, very seriously avant garde experimental jazz musicians. There is the Pulitzer Prize winning Henry Threadgill and the Nobel Prize winning Orna Coleman, your two tracks on his science fiction album. On the latter, there is this uh, fantastic long-form essay by the music critic David Keenan for the Red Bull Music Academy, where the terms disco mystic and the woman who fell to earth both come from, and which I've used often to describe you as well. I want to read this excerpt from David's essay. It's called uh, the disco mystic Uh, Ornette Coleman, Asha Putli in science fiction, David Keenan explains how the free jazz icon transformed the notion of time on his 1972 album with a little help from a then unknown Indian vocalist. And this is the quote. It is the presence of Indian vocalist Asha Putli, the woman who fell to earth, that provides the oracular link, the passage to the future of synthesized freak. Putley was a protege of John Hammond at Columbia Records, but Hammond failed to find the right vehicle for her combination of classical Indian modulation, sci-fi sex kitten eroticism, and Kate Bush-esque performance style until he passed her demo on to Coleman. Putley appears on two tracks on science fiction, What Reason Could I Give? and All My Life where the group's complex rhythms, pulling two ways at once, open out the ballad form in order for her to undress it completely. What reason could I give, she sighs, singing from deep inside the track, the third eye of the storm. To live only that I love you, how many times must I die for you, only when I'm without you, where will the clouds be if not in the sky when I die? But just as Coleman helped invent Putley as a future disco icon, Putley took Coleman's science fiction out into the wild. Over a span of 70s and early 80s recordings with titles like 1001 Nights of Love and I'm Gonna Kill It Tonight, Putley, under the spell of Coleman's break with the past, minted a free form, a free floating, ultra sexualized intergalactic disco that matched hyperventilating time with erotic electronics and surreal sonic environments. Give me some space, she gasps on space talk from her 76 album, The Devil Is Loose, as though it's essential oxygen for her. The video for Mr. Moonlight from 78's Lindiana is a Kenneth Anger film reshot as Atlantis with Putli cast as the lunar goddess in undersea green as she wanders lost amongst a petrified court wearing totemic animal masks and barnacled in gold. Take me into lunar glow, she purrs over tidal rhythms, and we feel the moon's pull. By this point, Putli has gone so far out that she has spacewalked into inner space, wandering on the floor of the amniotic ocean inside the time of the body itself. These are ragas for the cities of the red night, pure body music, no longer for the stations of the sun and the stars. I've never read any review or piece of writing that is more apt to who you are and the journey of you as an artist archetype. It's amazing. So this also goes back to what you told us about space talk and how it came about with, with your experience kind of n- navigating cosmic space and time. Will you tell us about your work with Ornette Coleman and the democracy of music, which you have cited as your learning from your time working with
2: him, Asha? Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing. I have never met this gentleman, David Keenan, but he writes so beautifully. I mean, so amazing. And I really would like to meet him someday. I hope I can because, uh, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. It's beautiful. I wish I could sing and write music like that. <laughs> anyway, yes, you asked me what on Coming back to... On it, I again have to thank my upbringing in India because as a young girl, I did yoga, meditation, and which helps us a lot. I don't do it anymore, but I used to when I was young. And, uh, it's, it's just amazing. When you work with something like avant-garde music that I had never, ever worked with anything like that before. Uh, I was used to American standards. And suddenly, out of the blue, there's all these different musicians playing and improvising, but at the same time staying very cohesive. It can be very challenging to sound perfect, cohesive, and in the frame of everything, when there is no frame, uh, so uh, that's when you just go into your inner sound, and you just focus on your inner self and whatever is playing around you. It's like like being in space, like you hear it, and it's like being uh, uh, um, floating in space, and you. Maneuver yourself through the notes and you maneuver yourself out of a falling star or whatever. That's it. That's what it was like. And yes, what I meant by democracy of music is exactly that. Because each musician was doing what they felt with that composition and yet staying within the, the whole thing. And that is democracy. You you are yourself, but you're still a huge community. And uh, you look after each other. And you look after the fact that you're following your path, you're doing your thing without being a hurdle in anyone else's way and just moving through it all.
1: And here it is the time tested, time traveling, space walking, cosmic superstar of a track, Space Talk. Let's have a listen. about space talk and the number of times it's been sampled as having children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, um, the lineage of the track. And I know you've told us a little bit about the origin as having kind of a dream space experience. But as an artist, what was the what was the origin of this track? What does it mean? Where did you get the lyrics from? What is it trying to say?
2: Uh, what it is trying to say is that Humans and aliens and space beings will all come together in the near future. That's all. And I used to always joke because this is a <laughs> record. Uh, was not appreciated when it first came out. And uh, then luckily, it was sent out through British Telecom on the 40th anniversary of the Apollo launch. And so when it went out, I joked about it. And I said, well, thank God, at least the aliens are going to love this because the humans don't get it. <laughs> so it was my love song to space beings. That's why it says, Venus, please help me, SOS planet. I need someone to love. And, and the whole thing about the electric finger searing my soul, because when you're floating in space, you know, it's, uh, imagine a comic strip book. Imagine uh, a, a painting. A or Like imagine Da Vinci's when the two fingers meet. Same thing. Electric shock. You know, the body, our, our nerves, our, uh, the electricity in our body gets wired up. That's all. It's a love song. And I'm a space cadet. And uh, that's it. I... I would love to meet a space being one day and fall in love with the space being, and the space being will fall in love with me.
1: I'm sure it's happened a lot already. I, I remember this story with the Ganelli, uh, the British satellite station Ganelli, which which uh, sent out the space talk into space to float forever into eternity. And I often think that must have happened already. There must be space beings who've heard the track and fallen in love with you already. As many of or many of us earth beings have. Um, Tell us about what you mean when you say, um, sorry to repeat the question, but the children, the grandchildren and the great grandchildren of Space Talk. I know this has to do with the number of artists who have sampled your work and then Mm. the samples that have been resampled, but I want to hear it from your words.
2: Okay, I think Space Talk may be because of the blessings of the aliens or the super beings that it's one of my most sampled songs and in and, and it's been a very organic growth it's like space talk is a grandmother let's say for example a great grandmother and then she gave birth to or he gave birth to the first initial sampling like there's something called who's who sampled or who sampled who, in which one can actually trace the genealogy. So let's say P. Diddy and Notorious B.I.G. sampled the first thing with uh, the world is filled. Then that was sampled by Jay-Z, that little bit from that song. So the gene pool now has gone into jay Z song. And that song was sampled by somebody else. And so goes on and on of course the the dna is getting less and less the the blood of space talk or the gene of so it's getting less and less but and then they have cousins and they have uh, like different people have sampled it so they have cousins like 50 cent did it so that's a cousin that one it's even called the world similar to the world is filled and that's the world So they're cousins. They're related. So that's what I mean. It's an organic growth. It's a living species. The song lives. I have nothing to do with it. And uh, it's just living by itself.
1: Lovely. That's a great way to describe the genealogy of a song. I love it. I love it. So I was actually amazed to find out that you know a lot about... um, not just the the culture but like even the subcultures going back into your time in New York you know about Ramel another one of the big progenitors of what became entire artistic movements and crossed over into mainstream trends. here this was about graffiti and hip-hop as artistic movements which like so much of what the world considers American came from black America just like you mentioned a little here a little earlier here then there was also, DBGB in New York, the progenitor to punk, which bands like Blondie with Debbie Harry brought into the mainstream. And then there was what had already become seismic, almost um, hugely crossed over into mainstream media coverage, which is disco as the genre of music. And especially the New York City hotspot known as Studio 54 with Andy Warhol and his disco glitter gang. So that place became known as one of the first you know, kind of, it became known as a den of vice and one of the first networking lounge group spaces, the who's who of the time were there. How did you meet Andy Warhol and what was your experience with him and the crowd
2: at Studio 54? Well, that's a lot of different things you've asked me. Well, first of all, how do I know about the graffiti and the hip hop -hop scene? Well, actually, I met uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat through Andy, by the way. And uh, 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 and you have to, because art and music, painting and music go together. One movement always follows the other. You will always see that, always. And, and going back through history. Uh, how did I meet Andy? I met him in 1970. I was invited to a book opening, a poet friend, of ours invited me. His name was Gerard Malanga and he was pretty close to Andy. And in those days, Andy used to carry... So he was at... It was a wonderful bookstore, like a historic bookstore called Gotham, the Gotham bookstore, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, sadly. I mean, if you look on the internet, you'll find a lot of nice things about it, I'm sure. It's quite a historical place. Uh, So Andy... Was there with his microphone? That's how I met him, and he was sticking it in everybody's mouth, and you know, getting us to say something or the other. He was basically quite very quiet in those days. You know, he'd been shot and whatnot just before that. So he came up to me with the mic, and I said, "Oh, please!" I said, "Don't shove anything in my mouth. I'm not that kind of girl." <laughs> and I don't. Know. <laughs> he thought it was funny he thought i was amusing and that's how he took a liking i guess to me in fact i had no idea how much he really cared and liked me till much 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 later but he was always advising me about what to do and what and but he also would take my ideas and uh, steal them which he did quite often you know with a lot of people not just me Yeah, like the dollar, the whole dollar note thing, it was somebody else's concept and he, So when when I first met Andy, well, but I must say um, recently at the Whitney Museum, they had, recently meaning during the COVID time, at the Whitney Museum they had a retrospective of Andy. It said from A to B or A to Z or whatever it was called. And As you entered the exhibit on the right in a case was, and they had opened one of his time capsules. His time capsules were things that in a year when he found it, he'd put things that he really liked or whatever, which were on his desk. And right in the center of this exhibit was my album, which I knew he liked it, but I didn't realize he liked it that much. So it was in his time capsule, along with wonderful things like uh, Bar- William Burroughs' book, uh, the Beatles' lyric book, the uh, Lou Reed's album, uh, Marcel Duchamp, who I know, he absolutely loved Marcel Duchamp's work, and other letters and invitations and all, all in that. It was in that uh, um, display. And I used to keep thinking, I wonder if all these people came alive at night, like all these things could speak to each other. What an interesting conversation that would be. But anyway, I had no idea. He liked, I mean, I had an inkling because I remember a couple of times, um, like um, Andy, Andy was the first one, by the way, to call me. He had my first album. Not Devil is Loose, the first one, the self-titled Asha Putli. The second album is She Loves to Hear the Music. And the third is Devil is Loose. So he had Asha Putli album, which had not been released in America. I'd been suspended and then dropped from CBS London. And uh, he had called me and he said, Asha, your thing is playing on the radio. And I said, really? So I went and switched it on. And it was Donna Summer, you know, sounding like me. So I said, that's not me. I said, Andy, it's somebody else. And I didn't go into the details, but that was it. But so I know that he cared for me, that he, and like it gave me things to, like it say, now when you're on stage, I want you to move your eyes left to right, left to right, left to right. And then uh, the idea that he borrowed from me or got inspired by was my very first record with Peter Ivers' blues band in 1970, along at the same time as I did Ornette Coleman. I also did the same year the Peter Ivers' blues band because John Hammond wanted to show, to prove what he had said to Clive Davis. He said, she can sing anything you want, you know, because when... Introduced me to Clive. Clive said, Oh, it's jazz, it won't sell. So John ended up introducing me to the Peter Ivers blues band. It got on the charts of the billboard. And uh, so the album hadn't come out, just the single. And we were all sitting at this famous place called Maxis Kansas City, which was the hot spot in those days. Not Studio 54, this is way before Studio 54 and Buzz uh, um, uh, Buzzkags everyone used to hang out there everyone all the musicians um, uh, Andy asked me who was going to do the cover and I said I have a concept for it but right now only the single has come out and I wanted the main track to be a song called You Can Take It Out and You Can Take It Out it's on YouTube now but with no cover and because somebody bought the rights, I think. So you can take it out on me. Uh and I wanted because it's all sex sounds after that, you can take it out on me. And then I got ooh, 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 all these, you know, funny sounds. So I said I wanted a pad of man's jeans, you know, pants, and a zipper, and a pink inner vinyl to cover it, the album, the vinyl. And, uh, of course, because of various reasons, I wouldn't change my name. I was a difficult artist, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't sign unless I had the right deal. The album was shelved for 40 years. It finally came out just in the 2000s. Um, and, um, and Andy, like a year later, I see, the Rolling Stones cover called Sticky Fingers with that concept, but not as nicely as I had imagined it. And it's on Sticky Fingers. And so I look, Sticky Fingers, Andy's done the cover. There is no title called Sticky Fingers. I was doing You Can Take It Out because I had a title called You Can Take It Out. Now, there's no sticky fingers. So I said, why on earth did Andy do that, you know? And everyone said, oh, you know what he's like. He takes people's ideas sometimes, you know, and if you don't act soon, he will beat you to it because a concept cannot be copyrighted. So uh, there it was, sticky fingers. And my friend who said this said, you know what it means, sticky fingers? I said, well, is he saying that they're masturbating to uh, the, the, what, the music, to um, Rolling Stones? That doesn't sound very much like music one would want to masturbate to. And he said, no, it means sticky fingers, means kleptomania. You take things, you know, but here he's taking your idea, concepts. Anyway, I thought you might find that interesting and funny.
1: It is. My God, what a, what a download of, like, new york history we just got of you know american pop culture history we just got there (laughs) so so moving on this is not off the devil is loose but uh this is a track called wild samurai And let's have a listen because it's actually come, uh, this track came uh, actually much later, but the song has such an interesting and curious history. I want you to talk a little about it, but let's have a quick listen to Wild Samurai first. Okay. You um, know, since Matangi Arula Pragasam, a.k.a. MIA, used her platform and celebrity to bring out what was happening in her home country of origins, Sri Lanka, she was lambasted for it, blocked from traveling. Her visa was denied. She was called a terrorist. And then, then there's that famous New York Times profile by Lynn Hirschberg that's come to be known as Trufflegate, where the writer said MIA was a fake wannabe activist. And on to now, Asha, today, where activism has become an integral part of a celebrity's PR portfolio. There's X number of appearances for a chosen celebrity cause, which are absolutely required to possibly counter in the public eye what constitutes the vast privileges of celebrity. But Before any of all of this, you were already involved in what is now known as celebrity activism. So specific to this track we've just heard, Wild Samurai, which is, I think, my favorite of all your music, um, and how it's related to Southall in the UK. Why did you feel to lend yourself your art, your work, your platform? What led you to it before there was a context for such activism? Can you tell us about how Wild Samurai is related to Southall?
2: Yeah, because I saw it in the newspapers, what was going on in Southall. And I remember when I was a stewardess for British Airways and we used to go into Heathrow and I used to always see all the people who were cleaning the bathrooms, doing all that work, they were mostly Sikhs, you know, the the, the or, or immigrants uh, who had just come, and they only, you know, they didn't speak much English either. Uh, that's the reason they wanted the Indian girls on British Airways because to deal with the uh, economy passengers, the immigrants were going for political asylum or whatever, uh, however they went. And I saw in the newspapers, "Come what may, we are here to stay." Big placards. There's a picture, and I was relating the Sikhs to the samurais because you know the whole kachakanga, the 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 samurai, the Kirpal, the the idea—they are like samurais. They are warriors in a way, you know, they have strength of a warrior. So that's how that came about. It was really a song for them. And I mean if you read the lyrics of that, it's all bricks and bones maybe whatever it was bricks and stones maybe my bones but whatever. It's like uh, it's all about I'm sorry, don't you remember the lyrics I wrote now, or the tune. I haven't ever sung it because it was never released in London, by the way. These records were never released. Just in Japan, of all the places, those rock albums. See, the good thing about rock albums, and I like doing those rock albums, Rainer Peach, the producer of it, saw me on a television show uh, doing Sing Me from a, my second album. And uh, he came up to me and he said, you really should be a rock singer because you have the moves of a rock singer. I said, okay, fine, let's do a rock because it gives you a chance to express more things, you know, like they can, many people in the rock industry have done protest and they're all activists, a a lot of them. So that's how that happened. Yeah.
1: Great. Good to know. Good to know. Nice to be. Nice to understand how it's related. It, it's a fantastic track, uh, Wild Samurai. So, Asha, bringing you into the present time, what are you doing now? I know we have this remix album with Naya Beat just out. And if you haven't gone and got yourself one, please get out and grab one. Like everything else Asha does, this too is going to turn out to be a collector's item. So... Make sure you've got one for your collection. And, of course, for the Fab Grooves. But, Asha, we'd like to know, you know, you're recording an album next month in Prague.
2: Yeah. But before I talk about my new album, I just wanted to tell you that uh, the song, uh, we're talking about Naya Beat, the first time I met Raghav and, uh, and Philippe was when they came to use one of my tracks, Chipko, Chipko, in their compilation. That's how I met them. And uh, funnily, you asked about uh, activism. And Chipko is a song which I wrote uh, because of, uh, in a way, Sundar Lal Bahuguna, who was the father of environment in the sense of save the Narbada, save the plant, plants, And Chipko was all the tribals who were hugging the trees. And they would tell the forestier, you cannot cut the trees. You want to cut the tree, you have to cut me. And this whole symbiotic relationship of human and tree was so important. But that's what that song is about in Chipko. It's a woman saying, don't bend me this way. Don't, you know. And Chipko, Chipko. Ari Baba, dekho. Ari dekho. Ari etu dekho. You know, it's all it's, it's um, with Michael Jackson's smooth criminal uh, track. You know that that's how we did it because um, Michael Jackson was so big in India at the time, and that was my one of my early or uh, first in Hindi pop albums ever. Aragav uh, knows more about that; he can tell you about it.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Prague next month, Asha? About
2: the new album you're recording in Prague? Yes, yes, I am. And I'm doing it with a label called MKMM. They're based out of Prague and Italy. And that's where I'll be recording it. Um, It's amazing because uh, the man who owns this company, what a story, but I don't want to digress. I don't know how much time we have, but I'm telling you, when you have fans that love you, and are devoted to you, uh, it's the best thing. Fans are my friends. They're my true, true friends. They are my family. They're everything to me, my fans. And Gabriel Grilotti was a fan who searched for me for two years before he found how to reach me because uh, this was in 2007, I think. And he found me. And then his dream, when he was young, and he was working with the Marble and San Pietro and all, and through all that hardship, he'd put the earphones and listen to my music. And his dream was one day to be able to sing with me. That's how it all happened. And he was just a true, true fan. And he became very wealthy, thank God. And he achieved his dream. And then he built his own studio. I mean, he's like a mogul, you know, and he's an amazing person. He's another person who, when you manifest things, it's so important. And he did that. He did it. So uh that's who I'm working with. I love working with him because of that joyousness. And there's a certain, I mean, a certain, uh, I don't know what you call it, you know, a feeling. Like I love working with Raghav and you and people that I just love.
1: So I think we've saved the best for last. A little bit of a drum roll moment here. We know about a very exciting documentary project on your life that's about to happen. Very exciting. And it's about time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about it? How it came about? What led to it?
2: There have been many times over the years I was asked to have a documentary done on me, on my life. And I just felt I wasn't old enough. I felt I have much more to live and much more to give. <laughs> and, but somehow the stars just aligned. And, uh, and Naya Beat, of course, had a great part to play in it. And uh, so I'm sure very soon you'll hear all the details and everything.
1: So from all of us here on the Brown History Podcast, thank you so much for your time and generosity of spirit to share yourself as an artist with all of us. Thank you for the living legend that you are to give us a place, space, and context of how our contributions from India have been a part of the global cultural narrative for a very long time, Asha. And and you're uh, you know, a living legend, a reminder to us of all of those things.
2: Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Deepti and Raghav and Philip and the Brown History Podcast. And just remember, I love you all because I wouldn't be here without you. Love it. We can only
1: look forward to all you have still to bring in. give, Asha. Right now, it is this Fab Remix Space Talk EP from Naya Beat. Then we've got a full-length remix album and the documentary to look forward to. And I, for one, cannot wait to see what else you've got coming up next. Hint, hint. Such exciting stuff. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Asha. Thank you.